It's good to worship together. We're going to study his word. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, chapter 10. This is um, week two of a new series. We started this series just last week. It's called City on a Hill. And so we're asking the question, what does it look like to be God's transformed people who are shining, shining out into the city, shining out into the world? And so last week, we've been, we're going to walk through a number of distinctives and pursuits that we want to go after as a church, and last week we looked at pursuing transformation. So we want to be abiding so deeply in God's word that it's, it's bearing fruit in our lives, it's producing change in our lives, inside-out change, not chores change, but inside-out change as God works at the desire center of our hearts through his word and by his Holy Spirit. So this, this week we're looking at the pursuit of worship. So we talked a couple, couple years ago, if you were here for the, the We Are series, we talked about we, we gather faithfully. And if we wanted to summarize in one word, what are you going after when we talk about gathering faithfully? It's worship. It's, it's the centrality of going after and exalting God and ascribing the glory that is due his name and doing that together as a church. And so that's what this text, we're going to look at a few places in scripture, but this will be one of our main home plates that we'll come back and touch throughout this message. So Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Go ahead and follow along as I read. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. I, as many of you know, I grew up in a pastor's home. My, my dad and mom took a step of faith, planted a church in New Orleans before I was born, and so I grew up pastor's kid. And, um, and one of the passages that was so dear to my dad was right here, Hebrews 10, 24, in the old school King James Version, it was, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. And that was a verse that he drilled into our heads and hearts over time. It was practically the verse we learned right after John three sixteen. you know, God loves you, don't skip church. So these two passages kind of, they worked together to form a kind of Christian curriculum of, uh, of what God wants for his people. Don't neglect as verse 25 says, to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, bear in mind, the ones who are in the habit of skipping gathered worship in Hebrews 10 are a persecuted group of believers. So this is, this is a church that has faced hard times. They, it talk, you just keep reading in Hebrews and you find out some of them, their family members are in prison and they're going to visit them. Some of their property has been confiscated. So this is a persecuted church, they were in danger when they met together. So you can almost understand and give some grace to the fact that they didn't want to stick their heads up too high and bring the heat their way. And, and yet, even in this passage, the writer says, I know, I know there's a threat when you gather together, 
but you need this gathering. So as some are in the habit of skipping this, don't skip this, you need this. And that was a persecuted church. We have far less reasons to skip church these days. We don't, we're not necessarily going to turn heat and persecution in our direction, but we can come up with other reasons, lesser reasons for why we would be in the habit of neglecting to gather together. Think about um, an article that came out in April 2016. Foxnews.com told the story of persecution in China and a government-ordered demolition of Christian worship centers all over a particular province that's named in the article. Tells the story of a Reverend Li Jung-gong and his wife and how they stood between the bulldozer and the worship center in a kind of standoff reminiscent of Tiananmen Square in 1989 and they stood there and the bulldozer pushed forward, pushed them into a ditch and buried them alive. This was just in 2016 this happened and other members of their congregation looked on screaming and wailing as this took place. The husband was able to dig his way out, the wife was suffocated underneath the rubble. And you read the rest of the article and you hear comments from their brothers and sisters in that faith family and they said that our pastor and his wife were tired of the Chinese government telling people when they could and couldn't worship, who they could and couldn't worship. It meant something to them to gather with God's people. Even in the early church, you see the book of Acts, it's brand new Church, so many people are coming to faith in Jesus, repenting of their sins, running to him for life, and then you find them out there, thousands strong in Solomon's colonnade, maybe the only place where they could all gather outside in the outer courts of the temple, and they're all there, thousands of them together, worshiping, but then heat comes from Judaism, persecution comes. Now they're not welcome there. Now they're not welcome in the synagogue, so they have to get creative, right? They call an audible. They say, hey, let's go to our houses, they find houses. Lydia, in Acts 16, she becomes a house. She's probably a well-to-do believer, maybe had a larger place where we can all meet at my place. So they started meeting all around the city. Before Acts is over, you see persecution is not just coming from one direction, it's coming from all directions, Jews, Gentiles. But, but no matter how bad it gets, not gathering as believers is never an option for the early church. Why? Because they knew they needed the gathering. What about us? Do we feel our need for the gathering? And what I mean by that is the ordinary gathering, the one that we're in right now, the ordinary gathering where we don't do anything crazy or innovative, something you've never seen before. We sing songs together. We pray corporately. We open God's word and study it. We meet at the water when somebody comes to faith and we baptize and so we celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and then we call it a day. Does that matter to us? Do we feel our need for that? I think in order to feel our need for worship, we need to think together about what worship is. So five characteristics of gathered worship that we're gonna walk through together. Number one is this. Worship is God-centered. Worship is God-centered. We have, verse 21, a great high priest over the house of God. Eyes are up for this congregation. We're talking about gathered worship, and their eyes are up looking at this great high priest who's over the house of God, this one who, as verse 20, opened up or inaugurated a new and living way 
for us to draw near to God. So it's people looking at the Savior, living in the good of what he has provided in his cross and resurrection, and it's a people who are accessing the presence of God together, eyes up, drawing near to God. The focus is on God all over this passage. Right out of the gate, the focus is on God. Now, just back up for a second and think about what worship is. So I read a book a a few years back called... um, Music Through the Eyes of Faith. It was written by Harold Best, who's the dean of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton College. Uh, Dr. Best made this statement about worship. This is macro, this is big worship definition. He says this, worship is the sign that in giving myself completely to someone or something, I want to be mastered by it. Let me read that again, think about it. Worship is the sign that in giving myself to completely to someone or something, I want to be mastered by it. One of the things that, that Best is doing right there is he's pointing to the reality that Christians don't have a corner on the market of worship. Everyone worships. We're wired. God made us to worship. So much so, we can't not worship. Worship is, of necessity, this continuous outpouring of our hearts to some great thing that fills our eyes, some great thing that we've apprehended, we've gotten a sight of it, and it's changed us, and now we want to be owned by it. We want to be controlled. Our whole life takes a new direction because of this great thing we've seen. This is in your notes. The problem in the world isn't an absence of worship. It's misdirected worship. It's not the absence of worship, it's misdirected worship. And if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, something happened. Something happened that turned your life in a different direction, that turned your worship in a new direction. And what happened is this, God the Holy Spirit broke in. God the Holy Spirit interrupted whatever it was that you thought was great before, whatever it was that you were ascribing ultimate value to and hitching your hopes up to and he interrupted and said that's a futile thing that's going away tomorrow or five years from now that won't last that can't satisfy you and here's what can and he points you to Jesus he opens your eyes to see the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ and that becomes compelling and now your life goes in a whole wholly different direction because you've seen the truth of the gospel this, this message that sits right at the center of Christian faith that a child could even understand that Jesus entered into this world and he became a man and he lived a perfect life and then he took your judgment on himself, your guilt, your blame, your shame on himself, went to the cross as a substitute to die for our sins and then he rose again and he offers new life to all who believe. And the moment you believe, everything starts changing. He becomes the one you want to follow. He becomes the all-supreme, all-satisfying Lord and King and treasure of your life. You want to run in his direction. You got eyes to see something you never saw before. And now, for the first time in your life, your worship is rightly directed toward the truly supreme object, namely God. You couldn't see him before. You see him now. And you can't unsee him. Right, it changes our lives. We want to be mastered, to borrow from from Harold Best. We want to be mastered by him now. We've seen something. We know where we belong. 
we know where true life is found. But, but here's the deal. We need gathered worship. Why? Because self-centeredness runs deep, doesn't it? Right? And you don't have to look any further back than this week to find out how self-centeredness runs deep in our lives. You ever met somebody who, uh, who only comes alive in conversation when you're talking about them? Right, a person who just kind of can keep talking and talking and talking about themselves, and then they're like, okay, I'm done talking about me. You talk about me. Right, it's like, I'm just tired of just sharing this, but now you tell me. Tell me some things that you think about my life and you think about me. Right, but that's, that's what church worship can actually become. It can become so me-centered. If we're not careful, we sing our dreams and our feelings and our unmet expectations, and then we sit down and we say, okay, God, you talk about my dreams and my feelings and my unmet expectations. I've talked to you about me. Now you talk to me about me, right? It's all about me. It's all about us. Enter worship. Worship says, you're not at the center of the universe. I'm not at the center of the universe God is at the center of the universe, and when he's there where he belongs, everything starts to come around in our own lives. That's why we've got this in our notes. Sunday worship is a therapy session. It is rightly orienting us to who's most important, namely God. You think about the um, teaching of Jesus. Jesus' disciples, they, they saw him praying all the time. They said, how do you do that? Teach us how to pray And Jesus said, here's the first thing you ask for. When you pray, come to your Father, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed's not a word that we use a whole lot these days. It means that which is possessed of all excellence. In other words, when we pray, hallowed be your name, right out of the gate in prayer, and Jesus says, that's where you start, hallowed be your name. What are we saying? We're saying, put your name in lights, in my heart. Put your name in lights in the city of Birmingham. Put your name in lights in the world. Your name matters the most. And Jesus taught his disciples. That was a regiment every day. He said, you can get to the other things. So you can pray and ask for daily bread. You can ask for forgiveness of your sins. You can ask for protection from the evil one. Get to all of that. But first, acknowledge he's overall. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's worthy of praise. God-centered worship puts everything back where it belongs. But when we come together, the last thing we need is to dive into our navels, you know, and kind of explore the inner depths of our intricacies of who I am. That, I do plenty of that during the week. <laughs> I need a way out. <laughs> I don't need a way further in and further down. I need a way up and out. That, that's where the life is. That's, that's where faith gets stronger. And in that way, again, modern worship centered on me, it's not actually solving a problem. It's creating one. What's it creating? It's creating this strange animal. It's creating this strange practice of me-focused Christian worship. That's, that's a contradiction in terms. Me-focused Christian worship. What, what's the effect on the church today? I think author, the late A.W. Tozer, was onto something a generation ago when he said this. It's getting harder to get people to attend worship when the only attraction is God. Are we content to come together and sing of the glory of God and hear about the glory and sufficiency of Jesus? Brooke Hills, let's aim, let's aim to worship him the way that he deserves to be worshiped. Let's, let's come every Sunday 
thirsty for God, eager to know him more deeply, eager to trust him more fully, putting him right where he belongs, in the center. Worship is God-centered too. Worship is word-driven. Worship is word, that is scripture, scripture-driven. In the 17th century, Christian pastors and leaders had a saying about gathered worship, and they said this, here's what we do when we gather. We sing the Bible, read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible. Every Sunday, they didn't change up the formula. That was it. We sing it, we read it, we preach it, we pray it. We gather around God's word, word driven worship. There's a kind of logic that goes something like this. This is in your notes. We'll just walk through these really quickly. A rationale. God gets glory by strengthening our faith. So that's where it starts. That's what God wants the product to be when we leave here, our faith to be stronger, us to trust him more, and we know that that faith issues in good works. So faith working through love. So God gets glory by strengthening our faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, hearing his word. So now the last point just is inductive. It just, it shows up. Therefore, our gatherings are filled with scripture. If the product, the end product is deeper trust in the hearts of God's people, and if deeper trust comes when we have his word in our ears, then it makes sense that this entire gathering, we want his word in our ears, ringing the entire service. We want his words in our ears. So that doesn't just inform the content. So think about it. We, we don't just want the content of worship to be full of Scripture. We want the elements of worship to be directed by Scripture. So think about that. This is in your notes. God tells us how we are to worship Him. Not just that we are to worship Him. He tells us how we are to worship Him. In other words, we don't get together and say, hey, what do we want to do this week? <laughs> Let's just be innovative. Let's try something that's never been tried before. No, we, we read the Bible and we see this is what the people have done. This is what God held out and said, when you get together, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to me. So Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, that's why we did what we just did. We've got a finger on, our ver- on a verse in Scripture where God tells us, sing. You look at Acts chapter 2, you see the church praying together. You see them inducting new members into the church through baptism. And then they were added to the church. You see them taking the Lord's Supper, breaking the bread, praying together. So, so what do we do? So we pray, and we baptize, and we meet at the Lord's table as well. We're not making this up. We get it right here, Acts chapter 2. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. Timothy, preach the word. That's what we're doing right now. So giving ourselves to hearing the preaching of God's word as we look at the text of Scripture. Even if you look in Acts 4 and 5 and other places like in 1 Corinthians, you even see collections being taken up from the members of the body. So members are giving generously and then resources are allocated for ministry in and to the body and and mission in the world. You see that in Acts 4 and 5 and other places as well. In other words, when we say that worship is word-driven, we mean we're not trying to do something that's never been done. We'd like to do something that's quite old. Roughly 2,000 years would be just about perfect. We want to do these things because we know, I've said this before, God knows how to build a believer. So if God says, hey, sing, pray, give yourself to the public reading and the preaching of Scripture, 
celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We trust that if he said that, it means I'll meet you at the table. I'll meet you in the water. I'll meet you in the book. I'll meet you in the prayers. I'll meet you in the singing. I'll meet you there. Let's find each other right there in that place. So we, we come with faith, trusting. This strengthens us. So worship is word-directed. Number three, worship is gospel-saturated. Worship is gospel-saturated. Look at just those first couple of verses. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, there's the shed blood of Christ that makes it possible for us to come to a holy God. Verse 20, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way. A new and living way where? Into the presence of God. So the curtain that he's talking about here through the curtain, the curtain in the Old Testament used to separate God's people from God's holiest place. And now the curtain has been torn, and in we go because of the gospel. So since we have a gospel, let's go, right? That's what he's saying. And since we have a great high priest, in verse 21, let's go in. So just factor in, what are those since we, that since we language? He's grounding. You can feel there's commands coming, right? Since we've done this, almost like if your parents said, since we've done this and we've done this, it's like, okay, the other shoe's going to drop, Right, there's a command that's coming. He's going to plant his pivot foot. He's going to swivel over, and now he's going to get to some commands. And they do. The commands come in verse 22. Let us, since we, since we, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold on. Verse 24, let us watch out for one another. Let us not neglect to gather. In verse 25. So there's the interplay, right, between, between grace and command, between what the indicatives and the imperatives, what God has done and what he calls his people to do in response. How how different would this text feel if we didn't have verse 19 to 21? If it just started right out saying, here's what I want you to do, draw near. Draw near, I told you draw near, hold fast, you hear me? Don't waver. See you wavering over there. Stop it right now, right? If it was just these commands that are just barked out of the text, there's been no since we, what God has done grace. It's just draw near, hold fast, don't waver, stir one another up, and don't forsake the assembling. It changes the whole tone, right, of the passage. I don't know if you've ever been to a church that, if you will, ignores the, the since we, ignores the, the good news of verse 19 to 21 and skips straight to telling the church what the church is supposed to do, right? Heavy on conviction, heavy on commands, light on assurance. You ever been to that church before? Where are you out? That, that kind of emphasis only encourages one crowd, spiritual giants, Spiritual giants leave feeling great about themselves. Spiritual people who are stumbling forward like you and me leave crushed by the weight of law unaccompanied by good news. Yet this text says, since we let us. Since we. And those since we's are God has done something. That's the interplay that he's going after here. It basically should sound like this. God has made a way. Already, it's been done. He's made a way for sinners to confidently come before his throne. So let's draw near. I mean, what else would we do? Let's draw near. So God has opened up a new and living way for us through the curtain. So let's hold fast. 
to this hope without wavering. God has provided a great high priest over the house of God. So let's have full assurance of faith. We're not conjuring up full assurance of faith. We're getting it from those since we's, from this grace that's been poured out on us through Jesus. So when I say worship is gospel-saturated, here's what I mean. We have good news to tell every Sunday. We have good news to tell every Sunday. Every Sunday, 3145 Brook Highland is a good news distribution facility. 9 a.m. next week, we'll have more. 11 a.m. next week, we'll have more. More what? More good news. <laughs> more since we of what God has done to make it possible for us to approach him. Why? Why do we need that? But because... Because if scripture is, is supposed to permeate our gatherings, and that's what we just talked about, word driven. Scripture is supposed to permeate our gatherings. What's the central story of the Bible? Good news. God calls it gospel. It means good news. I think it's a good time for us to remind ourselves of this truth. We don't live the Christian life and engage the gospel mission powered by moralism. It's not, you pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, hope to see you at the finish line. That is, that's, not, that's not the way forward for persevering faith. God isn't calling irreligious people in Birmingham to come and be religious with us. That's not our message. God, what does God want to do? He wants to sweep Birmingham off her feet with good news. He wants his kindness to lead unbelieving Birmingham to repentance all day, every Every day, that's what he wants to do. You know what that means for our gatherings? Here's what it means. You don't have to come here feeling strong. I hope that's really good news for us. You don't have to come here feeling strong. Think about the language that's used here in this text. Why do you think it's used? Why, why do you think the writer to the Hebrews has to say, hey, come boldly in verse 19. Hey, come boldly with full assurance of faith in verse 22. Come knowing God has washed and cleansed you in verse 22. Come and confess your hope without wavering in verse 23. Why are those even necessary? I think the answer is this. Because for 2,000 years, Christians have struggled with assurance when we approach God. Why? Because the accuser of the brothers is in our ears constantly saying, not you. <laughs> Spiritual giants can approach him today. Not you. Clean up your act this week. We'll, we'll reapproach next week and we'll talk about it again. You don't get to approach this week. 2,000 years Christians have felt like their hope is wavering. That's why we need commands just like this. You read the rest of the letter to the Hebrews. You know what you pick up about the state of these believers? They're wavering like it's going out of style. Every word in this letter it sounds like it's there precisely because they're wavering. That's why you have so much assurance in this book. But the author's constantly saying, hey, eyes up, eyes up. He who promised is faithful. Maybe some of you here need to hear that this morning. Eyes up. He who promised is faithful. Struggling, believer, weary in the battle against sin and temptation this week, depressed, discouraged believer, 
tapped out from chronic suffering and pain and hardship in your life. Hebrews 10 says, look up. He who promised is faithful. That's our confession. That's us holding on to that confession without wavering means we just keep saying it until the truth breaks in on us. We just keep saying it in defiant hope. It'll break through. The truth will break through eventually. I'm just going to keep saying it. There's a probably 60-year-old African-American lady at the church that I grew up in. Her name was Melinda Taylor. I called, called her sister Melinda. We had a thing. We, we sat next to each other in the second pew in that little church of 5885 Train Boulevard, New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, we sat next to each other. We sang next to each other. Both of my parents were on stage. My mom, during worship, was playing the organ, and my dad was in one of those old-school chairs that pastors used to have right on the stage. So he was, they looked kind of like thrones, actually. So he, he was there on stage worshiping from there. There was my mom, and it's me and Sister Melanie. We're just singing together, song after song. She sang alto for every song, and so that's how I learned alto. Before my voice changed, we were the alto section right there on the second pew, singing together. Then my voice changed, and we had three-part harmony. It was her on alto. I was on tenor. And my dad would sometimes just spontaneously call her up and say, Sister Mellon, I want you to come and sing. And he was going to, you could take it to the bank. She was going to sing one of two songs, His Eyes on the Sparrow or I Have Hope. And he'd say the word, she'd hop up and grab the mic. My mom would jump on the organ and kick off her high heels so she could feel the pedals underneath her feet. And they'd go at it and she'd sing. And she sang, I have hope. I heard that song so many times. I taught it to my kids yesterday. And we made a little video. We posted it. And uh, it's so interesting. Couldn't have planned this. A friend that I haven't seen in 30 years, a boy I grew up in church with, his name is Ronnie. Ronnie comments and he says, that's the song Sister Melinda used to sing. And she would sing, I have hope when troubles come my way. I have hope since Jesus has come to stay. I have hope when things are not well with me. I have hope. It's a beautiful hope that sets me free. And to hear it, even as a child, was to sense that she was singing that from a place of deep pain. And I wouldn't find out till years later, my mom would tell me some of the deep pain in her life. Even the, the instrument, the vocal instrument itself, it was split, it was, her vocal cords were damaged. And so when she would sing in her upper register, the sound, would, the note would split. You'd hear two notes, almost like a, Someone stroking a violin and they're hitting two notes at the same time, two strings at the same time. It was a broken instrument and she sang with this defiant hope. And, and early in my childhood, there was nurtured an instinct. And the instinct was this. I look forward to gathered worship because I know it has something to do with hope. Somehow, we are singing ourselves deeper to hoping in the promises of God. Doesn't mean we don't talk about real things. Doesn't mean we don't talk about sin and we don't feel conviction for our sin. Doesn't mean we don't talk about honestly about our suffering. I'm not talking about some kind of fantasy hope where we pretend our lives are awesome. No, just the opposite. I'm talking about owning up to all the mess that I am, all the mess that there is in this world, and doing so, not ignoring suffering and sin, but knowing our hope, we have a hope that overpowers them. 
we have a hope that's even stronger than our sin, even stronger than our suffering. Think about this. So if you, as a Christian, if you leave our gatherings, and you leave our gatherings with your tail between your legs, and you go out into the world, it's going to make the world think hope isn't the main thing you guys are exporting there at the Church of Brook Hills. Shame is. Guilt is. I see your people hanging their heads on the way out every Sunday, crushed by commands. On the other hand, if we come together and we hold fast our hope in what Jesus has done and we confess that over and over until the truth breaks in on us, right, we leave in a much different frame of mind, right? We leave feeling so secure in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, so loved by God, bring the world, right? Nothing this world has can stop us now. I think that's what Romans 8's talking about when it talks about more than conquerors. Those more than conquerors aren't pounding their chests. They're loved by God. That's what creates that kind of defiant hope. Look, we have hope for Birmingham. We have hope for the city. Church of Brook Hills, our primary export is hope. We can, as this text says, we can draw near with full assurance of faith. Heart sprinkled clean, we have good news. You know what I can't wait to say to you next week and for you to say back to me as we sing together? For us to say to each other, I know you've suffered this week, but we have promises to hold on to. And then for us to say through song after song, I know you've sinned this week, but we have a gospel. We have a savior. Worship is gospel saturated. Fourth, worship is mutually edifying. Mutually edifying. So it's about us. Love what Daniel said a moment ago. There's this corporate awareness. These commands, it's not, it doesn't say draw near, hold fast, consider how to stir up one another. It says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up. Here's the point. We don't gather to pretend we're alone. We don't gather to pretend we're alone. We're alone. Two classic texts in the New Testament about what singing should feel like on, in Sunday worship. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19. And they talk about how we are, the Apostle Paul writes, teaching and admonishing one another. It's horizontal. I'm singing to you. You're singing back to me. We're listening. We're admonishing each other. I remember... Uh, some years back when we first moved to Birmingham and a good friend from Brook Hills got married. And it was the first time my whole family got on the dance floor together, which it didn't start that way. A couple of us were reluctant, me, and, uh, and some of us weren't so reluctant, all our kids. And so they got out on the dance floor and, and Will, this is several years ago, Will throws a, fi- a metaphorical fishing line like this, just and he starts doing the pull motion, trying to pull his mom and I out onto the dance floor. I thought about that even when I was looking at this text, that there's a sense in which our worship should have a and we're pulling each other in. We're admonishing, hey, come with me. Don't make me do this by myself. Get out here. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You see him pulling on the line. Does, does your gathered worship feel like you're tugging others? Let's go. Let's honor God together. You know, why, do, why do poker players wear sunglasses? I don't know where that question came from this week, but I was just thinking about it. <laughs> Only thing I know about poker is when I'm flipping through the channels and I see the world championship, I just see them, they're all in glasses with like hoods and they're all covered up. 
Like, why do, they, why do they do that? Well, it's because of the tell, right? They don't want their outward expressions to tell other players what they're feeling. Not so in gathered worship. Somebody ought to be able to walk in, never been in a gathered a Christian worship service, and look around this room, and if nothing else, just to hear us singing and say, they're into this. They must think God is great. It sounds like God is great. <laughs> Show you a picture of John Wesley. There he is, right? He's a little bit dour. Um, John Wesley produced a hymnal, and um, at the beginning, I love what he does at the beginning is he writes a forward, and uh, before you start reading and singing all the hymns, he gives you what's called directions for singing, and he lays out seven principles for all the people who are reading these hymns. And we're, we're not going to read all of them, but here are the first four. Number one, learn these tunes before you learn any others. Two, sing them exactly as they are printed here without altering or mending them at all. And if you have learned to sing them otherwise, unlearn it as soon as you can. <laughs> Sounds like a fun guy to hang out with. Number three, sing all. See that you join the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you will find a blessing. I love that. Look at number four. Sing lustily. See, you look at him, you don't think he's capable of using the word. <laughs> Nothing about him screams lust, right? Sing lustily and with good courage. I love this. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. <laughs> Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. <laughs> You know what he's saying there, obviously. When you were in the world, you sang it with all your might. You were all in for your idols. He said, now what happens when you belong to God? Can't we be an all-in people singing full voice before our God? I love that. Sing lustily and with great courage. Does your worship have an admonishing quality to it? Is it pulling others in? Does your example encourage others to lean forward? Not just in the singing, in all the elements. Does your, your example when we open scripture together, when we're praying together, is it saying to others, hey, this is good what we're doing here. This is good, I'm glad we're doing this. And finally, number five, worship is for all of life. Worship is for all of life. At this point, takes us outside the realm of gathered worship, obviously, so I'm not going to linger here. But we always need to remember this point. Worship doesn't start or end here. Worship doesn't start or end here. We don't clock into worship when we come into the gathering. We don't clock out when we leave. Worship just changes directions. It's a continuous outpouring of our hearts. So as we leave gathered worship, we continue worshiping. How? In everything we do. Paul said, eating, drinking, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a pretty all-encompassing statement. Whatever's out there this week, do it as unto the Lord. 
Work as unto the Lord, not, not just serving a human employer. Work as if you're working and reporting to God himself. It's an act of worship. We worship by resisting temptation and killing bitterness and honoring our parents and not complaining and sharing the gospel and embracing obscurity when we'd rather the conversation be about us, right? All these small and big ways, thousand ordinary acts of faithfulness done for the glory of God. I want to leave us with three things. So Brooke Hills. Number one, prioritize gathered worship. Prioritize gathered worship. God is the one who calls us to worship. And if he tells even persecuted believers to not let the risk of further persecution dissuade them from gathering together weekly for worship, as is the habit of some, then if we're going to look at God's word honestly and let it deal with us, and we're going to be not only hearers but doers, it means this. The list of things that keeps us from faithfully attending gathered worship should be extremely small. It shouldn't be just any odd thing can keep us from coming to gather with God's people. Why? God calls us here to do this, to, to worship him together. So prioritize gathered worship. Two, participate in every element. Meaning, when it's time to sing, sing. When it's time to pray, pray. When it's time to read and study the word, open the book. Right, let's be all in. Let's participate in every aspect of the gathering. You know what that means practically? Be here when the first note is sung. You know one of the things that we do, sometimes Daniel will do many, many Sundays, is he'll begin the gathered worship with what's called a scriptural call to worship. You know what that is? That's us hearing scripture read over us in God's first person voice, and it's God saying, come and meet with me. One text will be read one Sunday, another text will be read another Sunday, and we hear the voice of our king saying, I'm glad the family's here. Let's do this. Let's meet together. Be here to hear that. Be here to hear your God summon you to worship. If we, got an, if we were visiting London and in the hotel room, there was a note that was slipped under with the seal of the queen inviting us to have dinner with the royal family, we wouldn't be late. <laughs> right? Somehow we'd figure out a way to make that happen. Wouldn't it be amazing if 9 a.m. next Sunday, 11 a.m. next Sunday, everyone or, or at least nearly everyone was here eager. Let's begin. Let's worship God. Let's not saunter in. Let's start praising God together. Prioritize gather worship Participate in every element. Third, because Jesus is your treasure. That is motivated by grace. <laughs> Do these things. I read an article that came out last year describing worship gatherings in North Korea. Quote, it's estimated that 300,000 North Korean believers find secret ways to worship Jesus together risking everything to come together to worship God as a community of believers. Here's a couple excerpts I'm going to read. Listen to this. It's best when these families live near the woods so they can hide their copy of the Bible if they have one. It's after midnight, one Christian describes. The two youngest children are sleeping. You sneak out, dig up your Bible, and bring it back inside. 
The curtains are pulled and very, very softly you read. There's even a story about a woman who was, had escaped from a prison camp and she was in prison camp and while she was there, she shared the gospel and five people came to faith in the North Korean prison. Guess what those five people did every Sunday? Figured out a way to come together and worship God. It said this, she, she said, on Sundays, we met together out of the view of the guards. Usually that was in the outhouse, standing around the toilet. There we held a short service. I taught them the Bible verses and the song I knew. We sang almost inaudibly so that no one would hear us. So many things can intervene in our lives and make us think, I'm not going to go. What we don't find, you read the book of Acts, these early church believers and the persecution is on, you don't find God's people waking up in scripture, feet hit the floor on Sunday morning trying to figure out whether or not they're going to go to church. It's an auto setting. And it's not an auto, it's not a religious, mindless auto setting. It is a passion auto setting. It is where else would I be on the Lord's day? It is similar to what we hear our forebears say in the Old Testament when they say in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the temple. Let's go to the house of the Lord. It wouldn't make any sense if on this side of the cross, with more good news per square inch than they ever dreamed of, and we're less eager to engage our God in corporate worship? No. Let's manifest an eagerness to gather and worship God together. Friends, this is for our good, and it is for his glory. And throughout God's word, you know what he does? We talked about this last week, the analogy that I had of a, of a coach, baseball, little league baseball coach getting down on his knee and he grabs the little ball and he sees the kid who's distracted looking every which way and he holds up the ball. He says, you see this? Hit this. And then he throws it. He grabs another one. See this? Hit this. Throughout God's word, Old and New Testaments, God holds up, gathered worship. He says, you see this? You're my people. You see this? Hit this. Hit this together. Aim at this for your good, for my glory. You aim at this faithfully, I'll make you strong. Trust me, I'll meet you at the table. I'll meet you in the singing. I'll meet you in the preaching. May God strengthen us as his people in this conviction.